Hello, I'm Michael Krigsman, and welcome to another episode of CXO Talk. I'm here with my co-host, Vala Offshark. Vala, how are you doing? Michael, good seeing you. It's good to see you again. <laughs> and our guest today is Joanna Young, who is the CIO of the University of New Hampshire. Joanna, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. And we're delighted that you could join us. Uh, UNH, the University of New Hampshire, is quite a huge research institution, isn't it? It is. We are a land, sea, and space grant institution, uh, the largest institution in New Hampshire. And how many students do you have? We have about 15,000 students between our undergraduate and our graduate and doctoral students and so, at, our, at our three campuses. So you're the CIO, and I always wonder what exactly a CIO does. Seems like a silly question, but, but really, what's the scope of your responsibility at the school? Well, the scope of the responsibility, there are some things that one might imagine, such as being in charge of the infrastructure, you know, the network, the data center, things of that nature. But really, the CIO role is much more integrated with the business than it has ever been before. And so really, the CIO role is, in many ways, it's that blend of technology and business officer and, and drive, helping to drive the results of the organization. So, so to what extent are you involved? If you were to divide up your, your role in terms of looking over the kind of traditional CIO activities, mm -hmm. infrastructure and so forth, as you said, versus working closely with the business side. How, how, do, how would you divide that? Oh, I'd say it's about 75% working, working with the business, working with my colleagues in the academic, administrative, and student areas, as well as the customers, the, the students themselves, and about 25% attending to, if you will, the, the nuts and bolts of, of IT. Has that changed over time? Has, has that proportion changed? Absolutely. I think over the past, you know, call it decade or so, or maybe even a bit longer, say since the late 90s, I think that's changed significantly. I think the CIO role has, uh, well, how I re reference it as a CIO plus role, is that if you're just focused on the pure play IT, you're probably not contributing as much as you could or should be. You really need to have a deep understanding of, of the business and how technology can enable the results. So pure play IT is, is it fair to say that pure play IT is dead? Um, I wouldn't say that it's dead. I mean, I think table stakes is that, you know, the network has to be up and running, you know, the data center's got to be there, you know, the, the reliability, the availability, the resiliency, You've got to be delivering on. You've got to be delivering on time. That's all got to be there, Michael. Is table stakes. So I wouldn't say that it's it, it's dead, but because there is such a greater degree of um, automation and um, you know what with cloud and software as a service and the whole nine yards, it used to take a tremendous amount of energy from the CIO to make sure that that all worked. I think that we've been able to shift our energy to being much better and stronger partners with the business than we have heretofore. Yeah, Joanna, you, you, you're a social CIO. You're active on, on social networks. You, you, you frequently write blogs. Uh, you recently wrote blogs uh, titled, Don't Let Process Kill Time to Market. Right. 
Uh, you wrote blog posts about plus is the new normal. Mm -hmm. And in these blogs, there's a theme, and you talk about the business needs and the need for IT and the CIO to ensure you have quick decision making, quick implementation, and response to business needs. And I love the CIO plus term that you coined. And you know, you, you, you have chief information uh, officer responsibilities, but you also have financial responsibilities and you're engaged with the community. Talk a little bit more about this um, CIO plus and how you as the CIO bring you know, the, the, the biggest value to, to the largest uh, you know, higher ed institution in New Hampshire. So the CIO plus concept is is all about the CIO contributing more and what he or she needs to do in order to to do that. And you know, there's a few things I would say. First of all, really important to un understand how your organization makes its revenue and you know what it's spending. And in my finance role, it's been really great because I've been able to get a lot closer to that. You need to understand how the how the how the money flows. The second thing that you need to understand is you have to be deeply in touch with your customers and what they are asking for or demanding and what the value proposition is for them. I've been spending a lot of time kind of thinking about and, and talking about, for example, the experience economy. And in higher education, I mean, that's truly an experience, whether it's a, a four-year degree or you're, you're coming in from, you know, maybe a, a short conference or seminar type of experience. You really want that experience to be seamless. And today, how that experience is seamless is highly enabled by technology. So, you know, I've got to understand, you know, what the customer demands and expects and how UNH can differentiate itself through its experience. So, you know, you take the money, understanding the customer experience. You know, also I think it's about you have to really be deeply engaged with your business partners. I mean, for example, I spend a lot of time with our folks in athletics and in dining, in addition to obviously, um, you know, my academic colleagues, because those two experiences are really key differentiators in terms of um, our undergraduate residential experience. So, you know, it, you've really got to have kind of that 360 degree or sometimes what I call the 460 degree view of what's going around you in your organization to really be effective as a, CIO, as a, as a CIO. And the CIO needs to be bringing you know, bringing opportunities uh, to the table just as much as any of the business leaders. There was uh, just an IDG publication, I think it was today or yesterday, titled, uh, you know, say goodbye to CIO, say hello to chief customer officer. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and the theme was, you know, understanding the business, understanding customer user experience, how to work across the lines of business, to ensure, again, customers at the center of all the decisions. It sounds like that, you know, being CIO plus, as you mentioned, understand what business success looks like, understand how to delight your customers, and more importantly, collaborate with uh, your peers and the other lines of business to ensure that there's a consistent alignment to the, you know, to the, to the, in this case, university culture, and making sure you're enabling optimal opportunity for students and faculty to, uh, to, to, to learn and grow. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And a CIO who really wants to contribute, and whether they're called CIO or CTO, or whatever the, you know, that middle letter is in between the C and the O, 
you know, if you don't have if you don't have that full understanding, particularly of the customer experience and how the financials work, I, you know, I, I think that you're not going to be contributing to the level that you that you that you could be. Doesn't this also mean uh, that the entire IT organization needs to relate to the customer in a different way? I mean, right now, uh, we know that budget, IT budgets are relatively flat. And I'm interested in your comment about what's happening at uh, University of New Hampshire regarding that. But technology across the enterprise is growing. And that means that lines of business and various departments are trying to take technology into their own hands. So, mm -hmm. so what's happening to your technology budget, and how do you relate to this whole trend, and what does this mean for the people inside your organization, your IT organization, for example? Well, hmm. I, I think you know, if you're going to be a CIO plus, you've got to have an IT organization plus. You know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have uh, a great team who's very connected uh, you know, with our customers. You know, they, um, you know, for example, I believe I talked about this in, perhaps in one of my blogs. We use the UNH Information Technology um, portfolio as a living laboratory for our students. We actually do about 10 to 12 projects a year with students in our computer science department where they come and work, work with my team. And that's such a, a great, great experience, that, you know, both ways. The students get, you know, amazing real-life ex experience in production environments that they can you know translate onto their on their resume and their education experience and my team gets to spend that time with their students and really get that in-depth understanding of what's important to them and uh, you know how they you know kind of how they operate in their in their daily lives and so I'm always looking for opportunities like that where my team can engage in, in very meaningful ways. I mean, obviously, you know, talking to people, being out and about, you have to do that. But engaging in meaningful ways like that make a huge difference. So um, that's, you know, that's very important that, I, that as a CIO, you are creating opportunities for your team to kind of come out of the cubicle, if you will, <laughs> and have those meaningful experiences, uh, you know, directly with, with the customer. I mean, we're very fortunate. We can see and hear our customers, um, our residential customers anyway, right there. So we certainly strive to take a lot of advantage of that. Um, and on the budget question, part of that question, Michael, um, certainly from an operational, like an OPEX perspective, we strive to keep our budget flat or even um, slightly down, uh, e you know, each year, you know, taking, taking advantage of, of cloud and, and other things like that. The However, from an investment perspective, we actually, IT investments at the university, and in fact at the university system, are now classified the same way as overall capital investments. So, like brick and mortar is traditionally very, um, you know, a very high level of investment for higher education inst institutions. You know, we always need, you know, the new science building, the new uh, recreation center, whatever the case may be. And IT has now risen to the level of those type of investments, where they are discussed and decided upon at the high, at the very highest levels, even up to our board of trustees. And that's really enabled us to increase our capital investment. And we're actually about to embark on a number of new projects 
uh, in the next uh, year or so that we're we're really hoping is going to get us to the next plateau of the of both operations and the customer experience. Joanna, you recently uh, wrote in a blog titled "Innovation is the New Operation," and yes. in that blog, you had an interesting comment. You say being open to innovation uh, may mean being a tad systematic, but don't obsess on the process. And you know, more and more technologies growing outside of the IT organization. And we've had recently CIOs uh, on our show. And they've talked about shadow IT. And yeah. interestingly enough, and maybe a bit counterintuitive, uh, most of the CIOs we've had have said that they're comfortable with shadow IT because mm -hmm. in, 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 in some way it gives them an opportunity to understand why are the lines of business going outside of IT to get services that they should be getting by collaborating with IT. So it's an opportunity for the CIOs to better understand and identify potentially areas of improvement within their own, as you said, IT organization plus. What are your views in terms of shadow IT? And do you agree with some of our other CIO guests that shadow IT is a good thing, but at the same time, it's an opportunity for IT organizations to better understand how they can bolster their service capabilities? Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm totally fine with shadow IT. For me, it's there needs to be some alignment. I mean, and there's some practical reasons for that. So we've been working um, a lot over the last few years. There are various shadow IT groups at the university, and my team has been working very hard to have a stronger relationship with them, whether it's in our research computing, which uh, actually is a separate uh, small IT group, or directly in some of our academic departments. And there's a couple of reasons why that's really important to me. The first is very practical, is if these folks are deploying technology, you know, they're deploying things like servers or, or you know, they're deploying, uh, you know, VPNs, from a, just a security perspective, it's important that they're doing it in such a way that's, that's practical and doesn't, uh, isn't going to have a negative effect on our production environment. So there's that practical side of it. But the more interesting part of it, I think, speaks to your point is these people do tend to be closer to either the internal customer or our actual customers and there's a tremendous amount to be learned from them and so uh, we've actually aligned them with our organization such that all the way from the mundane things like you know change control and, and letting us know about you know projects that they might have going on and, and vice versa all the way up to the innovative where, you know, we'll go to them and say, hey, you know, we're thinking about doing this. What do you think? And they're like, oh, well, you know, in my department, you know, we're going to have to think about this. We're going to have to, you're going to have to engage uh, in this way. And then on the innovation side, you know, they often think of things that we might not necessarily think of. The way I look at it is uh, the more bright minds, the better. And just because these resources aren't within my direct control, I think, you know, that them being aligned with our department makes the whole IT function, can make the whole IT function stronger. You know, embrace them, align with them, make friends with them, and it, right. it should be good. Have you been able to convert or transition some of the innovation or IT services that are outside of the traditional IT org and bring them in-house by collaborating more and, and proving to them that you know, you have faster, more secure, more advanced servers, applications, and so on and so forth. 
Sure, ab absolutely. So um, in our mobile area, actually the, the two departments that were innovative in that space was our dining organization and mm -hmm. athletics. And so they sort of popped up first and um, over time we now have a singular UNH mobile app and so you know they're absolutely uh, still able to innovate and get what they need there but we have a more kind of a comprehensive UNH mobile application which is better for our customers right because they can go to one place and and uh, and get get what they need so that's one so that that's one great example you know in our research research area uh, they actually we have a our own research data center at the university which of course is, is very important because of our strong research operation and we've actually been able to learn things from them in terms of um, a better data center environmental controls they actually built an application that they called sheepdog that um, was about um, uh, kind of HVAC sort of management associated with with the data center and we were able to leverage some of that into our production data center and it, it actually even helped with OPEX because we're now sharing things between the two data centers you know we are um, you know, awesome. we have some redundancy between the two so you know those are really two primary examples that I would use excellent Joanna, uh, we have a question from Twitter and it's funny I was just about to ask this exact thing, uh, which, which is, what are you doing with the cloud at the University of New Hampshire? Um, so the, the cloud is, you know, another a way of deploying technology, right? So um, one of the things that we're doing with the cloud is in our academic technology space, our, our faculty more and more often are using, you know, digital media, particularly video, in order to um, deliver the educational product and it may be in terms of complete online classrooms or it may be you know materials or things that are doing within the more traditional classroom setting that all that uh, video and digital media is stored in the cloud because when this first started to come up I was like yeah I'm not sure that you know having a boatload of, of storage and all that you know in the data center is a great idea I think we can do it uh, more effectively and with better resiliency if we're doing that out in the cloud. So that's that's one example. Um, a, a increasing amount of our systems, particularly new systems, we try to default to cloud-based solutions. And I'm using cloud sort of loosely, Michael. I mean, it might be software as a service. Um, you know, it might be something within one of the large cloud providers. I think that I have to tell you, th there is a tough hurdle here and that is on our legacy applications, moving legacy applications um, into the cloud to get those benefits of effectiveness and efficiency. Um, that I think is going to be a long, long haul for us. So how do you, so, so you say that you're increasingly defaulting to yes. the cloud when it's possible? Yep, how, absolutely. I was going to say, so what does that imply for your relationships with the uh, the legacy vendors. It's, it's funny to call them legacy vendors. Let's say on-premise vendors. Um, I think I think it's fine because most of them have cloud solutions, and you know what I say to them. You know, so they'll come and talk to me about you know their offerings in that space, and I'll say, look, you know, I get it, and I know that it, it's probably not a matter of if we do this. It's probably a matter of of when. Um, but what you need to help me as a CIO understand is what is the pathway for me and for my organization and for the university 
to to get from where we are today to you know the benefits that um, you get as part of a cloud solution, particularly you know that that resi that resiliency and some savings on the opex, because and I think what I get down to with them is you don't really need to sell me that it's a good idea probably to move to the cloud. What you need to sell me on is that you know that pathway and that journey and you know what do, if I want to be doing this let's say you know in four years what do I need to be doing this year what do I need to be doing next year what do I need to be talking to my business partners about and how do I need to be engaging them in this conversation you know lay that out lay that out for me and once I can get the vendor to that to that place of being more a partner in the journey as opposed to just selling me a cloud product then um, the conversation starts to be more more positive and more productive. So the message is CIOs are looking for business partners, not just vendors. Absolutely, I, you know, a vendor is is, is really just uh, you know a name for the person that's the, the other person on the contract that you're signing. Um, it has to be really, uh, really a, a partnership. And I think the great thing about higher education. In the technology space, because science, technology, engineering, and math, um, there, there's such demand for that. We have a lot of opportunities to partner with vendors in um, really meaningful ways. Whether that's having the vendor work with, uh, or I should say, partner work with our faculty, maybe on something in the curriculum, or uh, you know, maybe the, uh, the the partner. Maybe we have educational offerings that would be of use to the partner in terms of developing their employees. And so there's a lot of great ways in higher education that we can really effectively, really effectively partner. So we've talked about one mega trend, uh, that being the cloud in, in IT and business. Another one is certainly mobility. And uh, you know, you're, you're a CIO of, a, of, one, of the largest university in, in, in the state of New Hampshire. And that with 15,000 some odd students and faculty and administration, you have arguably the most connected mobile customers in the world. Mm -hmm. Today, an average student in, in higher ed has, uh, I believe, four IP-connected yep. devices with their laptops and smartphones and, 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 and tablets and either a gaming device or e-readers. And mm -hmm. wait till you've got the Google Glass and the Apple iWatch and so on Absolutely. and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so talk, talk to us about your, your BYOD, Bring Your Own Device initiatives and what benefits and 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 I know in 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 a university you know you, you the CIOs there and the institutions are perhaps far more ahead than other um, other businesses but some enterprise struggle with BYOD and 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 so what advice do you have and share some of the benefits and and implementation best practices with our audience? Yeah, so one um, one of the advantages we had Bella, as you know is that in higher ed it's always sort of been BYOD right. So kind of as, as soon as they were, were PCs or mobile devices, that was a reality uh, for us, and we had to deal with it. So when, you know, even before BYOD was called that, um, so when, you know, that kind of became formalized as, um, you know, an, an innovation and a reality for IT organizations, we at least had the advantage of already having to contend with it. So a couple things I would say. First of all, as it relates, the demands on the network are on a hockey stick trajectory. I mean, the demands have always been, you know, trending upwards. Now they're trending even more sharply upwards, both because of the number of devices, the number of applications that are on those devices, 
and the increasing use of rich media, particularly video, on those applications. So you know, it's sort of a um, it's sort of a triple threat in terms of man managing your network. So we have to be very cognizant of making sure that we have a, a pretty aggressive strategy in terms of our um, our bandwidth, both on you know wireless and and connected. Uh, you know, it's funny. Our highest bandwidth times are like from 10 to 2 in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, which you might expect, but also at between like 1 and 3 in the morning uh, in our residence halls because that's when um, a lot of our customers are up and gaming and doing their homework and what have you. So that, you know, so that creates some interesting um, challenges. You know, security, obviously. I mean, you know, we have, you know, we have to be caught, you know, we have a kind of a guest access and then we have to kind of segregate our, our student and some of our faculty access relative to the applications they're using. And then we have our enterprise VPN. So I think for us with BYOD, we've had to be conscious of, you know, there's some things we really need to sort of wall off and have separate, separate access for. And you have to, you know, as these new applications are coming online, we have to think very carefully about where they fit in the BYOD, um, BYOD space. But again, I think the biggest thing for me is, is keeping up with that massive um, demand on the d network day after day. So the three elements then that are the big challenges regarding BYOD are security, bandwidth, and network availability. Yes. Yep. Yeah, when the net when the network has a hiccup, that's that's not a good day for me. Yeah, especially when it's during that uh, active time between one and three in the morning. I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, luckily we have some great automation and I have great people, so uh, we, we we swing into action no matter what time of of day or day or night it is. The other thing I would say is that, I, and I think this is true of a lot of organizations, is that we have a lot of very dense events, and. Um, you know, our campus is, is very, you know, spread out. Um, you know, we have all the way from horse barns on kind of one end all the way to, you know, you know, residence halls and bleeding into the downtown Durham area on the other end. And there's dense events happening all the time all over the campus. And uh, we're getting more and more into thinking how can we use our, you know, our mobile apps and our increasingly strong Wi-Fi to in improve the experiences related with, with, the, with those events. And you know, BYOD factors into that as well, because you really have no clue what people are going to bring to these things right. and how they're going to want to interact. Yeah, we were just, just talking about the Mary Meeker uh, 2013 Internet Trends report oh. that she mm -hmm. just talked about at the D11 conference. And just the, the, the twice the volume, it, the, the volume of photo sharing doubles, uh, has doubled since 2011. I think alluded to 500 million photos and, 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 uh, and, and just the massive growth of mobility. It seems like smart devices are now your remote control for life. And I can imagine with mm -hmm. students on campus, it's uh, BYOD is, is, is it's not even a technology discussion. It's a lifestyle discussion. So I don't see yeah. how CIOs in the enterprise outside of universities can think about, you know, avoiding this, this mega trend. It's almost like fighting gravity. And you said, yeah. Joanna, you said that, that you yourself are seeing this hockey stick kind of growth. That's the term you used. 
Oh yeah, ab absolutely. I, you know, we 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 can trend it, and I it, I can actually point it back to when um, the iPad came out. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, if if memory serves, it was at a around a holiday, and <laughs> when people came back, they brought a lot of those devices with them, and all of a sudden the network started to go uh, that. And you know, I think it, it was that, and it was it was also when the uh, mobile apps really started to explode. We started to see a tremendous difference at that. Um, at that point as well. I mean, I believe if 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 I have my facts straight, I believe if we're not there already, we soon will be. With uh, you know, we've got about seven billion people on the planet, and I think we now have about seven billion mobile devices. If we're That's not right. there, we're close. Correct. That's right. We've passed. Uh, yeah. We passed that threshold. In fact, in the in the Mary Mika report, she talked about tablets. In less than three years, the unit volume of tablets have surpassed. Uh, laptops and, and, and notebooks. Um, so it's, it's, it's amazing. It's absolutely, oh, yeah. I think it's the fastest uh, technology adoption of any technology has been you know, the, the, the tablet since introduction less than three years ago. So. Yeah, absolutely. I would say uh, when I started at UNH and you'd go into a meeting, people would be there. They'd either have a laptop or you know, maybe they would you know, just have you know, some paper. Now you go into a meeting, and you know probably seventy-five percent of the people in the room have a, have a tablet, and you know not too many people are are carrying their laptops around with them. And every one of them demands immediate and quality access from you. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was in a meeting today in Concord, and um, well, actually, I was waiting for my meeting to start, and there was another meeting going on in the room, and we were waiting for those folks to finish, but. Some of them had seen me come in, so they knew I was there. And one of the guys got up, stuck his head out the door, and was like, "Joanna, I can't, I can't connect." So, yeah. so I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" So yeah, I mean, you know, it's really uh, that. That's yeah, that's an interesting thing about being a CIO. You, you know, what tablet should I buy? I can't connect. Um, you know, you're always trying to help people with those those little things to make chief sure help desk easier. officer. You're the I am place. chief help desk officer. Absolutely. <laughs> now that's CIO plus. <laughs> that, that is that is that is CIO plus. It, well, I you know one of my first jobs actually was running a um, technology support organization, and I'm I got to tell you I'm really glad that I have that in my experience because I have a real appreciation for what it takes to run a good help IT help desk. So that's that's good. That's excellent. So, so Joanna, let's talk about social media. Oh yeah. You blog and you yeah. use Twitter, mm -hmm. and you're a very busy uh, woman. Why is it that, as a CIO, you do these things? Um, well, why I do those things has changed. I have to tell you over time. When I first did it, you know, I got to admit it, it was kind of new and it was cool, and you know, I was kind of enjoying, you know, just connecting with people, and it was fun. And my view has has really, I think, changed and hopefully matured since I've been doing it for, uh, for a while. And for me, uh, Michael and Bala, it has become about accelerating the speed of connecting with um, people and organizations. I learn about things from, for example, my my primary partners, such as Interacis. I will learn about things through Twitter faster really than any other other medium and so I find that I'm able to really my contribution can increase because I'm able to uh, either learn things or, or connect with people 
much faster than I did before. And I'm really able to translate that into, um, you know, correlating it back to, you know, my, con my contribution. For example, I met someone in, at an event last week, um, you know, we connected on Twitter, and now there's like three or four things we're talking about, you, you know, um, doing and collaborate, collaborating on. And, you know, and then through that person, I've connected with a couple of other people, and it really just starts to explode. And I've had people say to me, oh, my gosh, how do you do this and, you know, email and, and you know, LinkedIn and et cetera, et cetera. And I said, I don't look at it as an additional thing. I really look at it as something that helps me kind of accelerate, um, you know, accelerate things. And actually, I'm spending less time kind of flailing around in email. You know, where do I put that person's contact information? <laughs> I don't have to worry about that. I can just... And I say, oh, yeah, that's their handle. I'll just direct message them and, and go from there. So it's, it's beautiful. There's no filter. You know, I, yeah. I love the fact that I'm connected to executives such as yourself. And in a normal channel, Michael and I and others would have to speak to your administrator and speak to the, you know, the press <laughs> and analyst relations person versus, like you said, UNHCIO, you know, I have a question or what do you think right. of this? And it's... It's instantaneous connection. It's, it's amazing. To me, it's, it's, it's yeah. brilliant. I mean, yeah. for me, you know, when I need to get something done, especially if it's in a rush, I just send a direct message because it just <laughs> bypasses everything. You, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. All the filters. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's just so much faster. Do you, is there one social network that you use more than the others to... To, for either accelerating connections or learning about uh, industry news, technology, and, 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 and vendors and partners and so on and so forth? I mean, Twitter is definitely the, the, the primary one I use, Vala. Though I have, um, I, I have been kind of focused recently on, on better aligning kind of my Twitter and my LinkedIn um, presence and doing a little bit more on doing a little bit more on on LinkedIn actually, but but Twitter definitely I, I don't know if it's the way I work or whatever, but that just really took off for me once once I got that connection between Twitter being able to accelerate my contribution, um, you know I, I became a lot more active. Great, great. Now you have responsibilities as we talked about. You have some chief financial officer responsibilities. You have your technology CIO. Hat, which is in your case is more than information, it's innovation, imagination, integration, intelligence, <laughs> all that amazing work that you do. Um, as you evaluate partners, and we talked about partners, not vendors, how often do you work with startups uh, versus, for example, established public organizations? Because again, that balance of financial responsibility, which you know, the reliability of the company and, and the longevity, I'm, I'm sure, comes into play. Do you, do, you, do you have, um, um, in terms of your procurement process and partnerships, startups that you work with? And, and, and maybe you can name a few if, if, if that's the case. Um, so, um, so, no, so I would say mainly at, at UNH, the, the main place where I work with startups is in our research and commercialization space. Yeah. Um, I work a lot with our, our head of commercialization, a guy called Mark Saddam. And, you know, his job really is to kind of connect, um, in particular, you know, the intellectual property of our research faculty, you know, to the, to the business community and, and try, to, try to make a match there. 
And so I do get involved in that, and New Hampshire is really starting to have um, kind of a, a, a really nice buzz around kind of startups and, and innovation. So I spend time there. In terms of our the IT systems that we actually have at the university that we have in production, um, we're not using a lot of startups yet. We, you know, we have a lot of legacy stuff in in that space, um, and so really most of the vendors I talk to tend to be um, the the larger uh, the, the larger vendors. But I have been talking to Mark Saddam about how we can translate some of the startups into our our production. It's kind of tough in a large organization um, to to get startups in into production. Um, you know, sometimes there's scale issues. Um, you know, sometimes you can maybe be a little bit concerned about the risk. I will give you one great example, though. There was there was a, was a startup in the e-procurement space. Uh, they're called Unimarket, and we actually did end up um, buying them and using them as our e-procurement solution. Great. And it's been really interesting because it's been such a great partnership where um, they've almost been using us as their test case in terms of you know how to do e-procurement, particularly in the higher ed higher ed space. And that's been that's been kind of a uh, you know a neat journey. A neat journey. You know, on the pro side. You know, we get a ton of their attention. They're really innovative. You know, they turn around stuff really fast, and that's been great. On the side that maybe is a little more challenging is, um, I think, is the scale piece. You know, sometimes startups can have, um, you know, they're still trying to nail it and scale it, if you will. So, um, but in this instance with e-procurement, um, it's actually worked out pretty well. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And the, it's funny, the information technology department, my... Um, my business service center that handles all the, the vendor stuff. Actually, we piloted it because um, I like to, you know, eat my own dog food before I roll it out to my customers. Yeah. Great. That's so, excellent. So, on that subject of partners, what advice do you have for vendors that want to sell into the University of New Hampshire? Sell technology. Um, the advice I would have, uh, first of all, is do not, um, don't call my office or send me email, <laughs> um, because it, you just they they just kind of get lost in the the plethora of of stuff that comes in that way. The, the best way I I would encourage is, um, you know, if the if the CIO or another kind of key person at the university is is active in social media, whether that's you know Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever the case may be. Look at what they're tweeting about. Look at what they're posting and talking about out there. Look at who they're connected and following, because that's probably. I mean, I'm following all my major partners, right? I mean, I'm following Interasys and Blackboard and Lucian and all those folks, and so that's going to give you a really good picture right there of what is that person interested in? What's their? What are their existing relationships? Um, and then, you know, engage with. I mean, and. If that key person, the CIO, let's say, is really active in that space, that should be sending that vendor a signal. Find a way to engage them in the so in their social media um, network in that sphere, and, and find a way to, you know, connect and and start chatting and and talking and finding some common areas of of, of interest. That's, and I think at that point, if if you if they're doing their job right and they're really understanding. Um, what's important to that CIO and what their challenges are, um, they're going to be able to find 
a way to talk about how they can bring value. If you're just kind of cold calling me or sending me an email, um, and let's face it, I get a lot of kind of cookie cutter things. You know, I can tell that it's cookie cutter. I can tell they probably haven't maybe taken a good look at what um, I'm talking about, what I'm interested in. And the, I got to tell you, it's a little bit of a turnoff. So, um, you know, I mean, social media is out there. It's pretty much, you know, free to use. It just takes, you know, time and work. Vendors who, whether they're startups or large vendors, if you're really interested in an organization such as University of New Hampshire, go to where people are connecting, and you should be able to figure out a way to connect positively. It's, it's amazing that, you know, here we are, and... Well, it doesn't surprise me at all because you know you you were named as one of the most social CIOs in the world in a Huffington Post piece, and and here you are talking about you know if you want to connect with me rather than phone or email, do your homework by connecting to the social network that I'm that I'm a part of. Read my blogs, look at my tweets, understand my vision, challenges, and and aspirations. As, as a CIO of a large institution and, 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 and then perhaps you've earned a right to be able to pitch your product or solution to me. I think that's unbelievably useful advice because mm -hmm. so many CIOs are not social, so many vendors are not leveraging the platform to really better understand the institutions that they're targeting as, uh, and prospecting. So I hope the folks that are listening uh, into this show uh, really, uh, you know, um, hear your advice and think about the next time they pick up the phone and try to, uh, you know, uh, leave a message saying, you know, what, I'm, I'm curious to know your pain points. You know, here's my name oh. and number. Call me back because I know as as uh, as a, as an executive at, at Interesis, that does nothing for me. Uh, no. it, you know, so yeah. If you want to understand my, I mean. And it's going to take them so much more time to go through that traditional process. I mean, right. in probably 15 minutes, they can find out uh, really a ton about me and about UNH uh, just by checking out social media. And I have to echo that. As somebody who writes about this stuff, I also get pitched constantly mm -hmm. by technology companies, and a lot of times they're PR agents. And the cookie-cutter ones tend to be annoying, and you ignore them. Yeah. And the ones where you respond are the, the people who have engaged with you in some way and at the very least know exactly what you're interested in so that they can touch your particular focus or pain points right out of the box. Yeah, and I think in fairness it's a two-way street. Um, I think as, as, as a CIO or other sort of, of, of chief officer, I think anybody who's not participating in social media they really need to think hard uh, about why they're not doing or why they're not doing that because it's going to you it's going to make your life easier if you're participating out there um, you know rather than you know struggling through that process of trying to sift through what you know vendors you want to talk to or not talk to it needs to be a really a conscious decision and i think people are sometimes not making a conscious decision about whether to participate or not Breaking down the barriers to communication. Absolutely. 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 And it, and it is a conversation, as you said. Um, I wanted to share with you, uh, recently we surveyed hundreds of, um, um, uh, of contacts in, in the higher ed space, specifically targeting this 
this um, massive open online courses yeah. innovation that appears to be highly disruptive in, 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 in education. And we had, um, again, hundreds of folks respond. And I wanted to share some of the stats with you. In the survey, and this was a global survey, 84% of the schools said that MOOCs um, complement residential education. 90% um, um, of the schools offer online courses today or plan to in the next, um, in the next three years. Um, only 44% of the schools are planning to offer MOOC credits. And finally, uh, you know, 67% uh, believe that MOOCs will never replace traditional or residential classes, but 5% uh, thought that it could, but it would take five years. Um, you know, so, so, so it's definitely on the radar mm -hmm. of, of uh, higher ed institutions. And some at Coursera and Udacity and edX are actively recruiting and delivering to millions of students as we speak. What are your thoughts about massive open online courses and and how disruptive do you think it is in in education? So how I think about massively open online courses MOOCs is that it's another channel of delivering education and it can be a very effective effective channel. Um, you know, MOOC has become kind of this, you know, buzzword, you know, there is a lot of energy around it, both positive and sometimes maybe, maybe not so positive. How I try to encourage um, UNH to think about it is that what it really is is about delivering your educational product using technology in an effective way. It's a different model of delivery. And whether you're doing MOOCs, which are you know really kind of like the open source, if you will, way of delivering it, or you're delivering online and you, you've monetized that in some way, you know, it, again, I get back to who are your customers, how do they want to receive the product, and you know how are you going to fit fit that into your into your business model. So so I would say that first. I firmly believe, without a shadow of a doubt that more and more educational product across the board, I mean, all the way into, you know, K through 12, all the way up through, um, you know, higher education, and even as people kind of get, have educational experiences throughout their life, either to develop personally or professionally, more and more of that is already online, and that is only going to um, increase. I mean, I'll give you an example. I had a real-life example. I had a uh, contractor doing some work on my house, he was um, putting in a, a new deck for us, and he had to f figure out a way to do this certain part of, of the deck that he had never done before. He went out and watched a YouTube video, <laughs> and he used the YouTube video to figure out it, he wanted to curve this one part of the deck, and and that's how he did it. And I came home that day. I was like, "Wow, it looks you know, it looks great." And he and I'm like, and my you know, we were asking him you know, how he did it. And he was like, oh, yeah, I looked it up on YouTube, and that's how I learned how to do it. And now he has um, potentially another customer who saw our deck who he, he's going to do that for. So, you know, here's this guy, this, you know, kind of, uh, you know, great guy, blue-collar guy. He's using YouTube to figure out how to do new things in construction. I love it. I love it. So, you know, more and more it's going to be part of people's lives. They're just going to expect to have offerings that are delivered that way. And the technology enables it. I mean, UNH is very fortunate to have um, an incredible amount of bandwidth. We have our own 
um, Higher Education and Research Network in, in New Hampshire. So we have uh, plenty of bandwidth to deliver our, our product, which, which is nice. And but, but I often say to people, it's not a matter of if you're going to do it this way. It's a matter of how you're going to do it, when you're going to do it, and you have to really think carefully about how you're going to monetize it. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can monetize you know, MOOCs or whatever you're doing online. Are you going to charge for it in a traditional kind of tuition and fees sort of way? Are you maybe going to use MOOCs as sort of a uh, maybe a, a bit of a loss leader to kind of bring people to you right. and get you interested in your other products? Um, you know, are you going to you know advertise on your MOOCs? And I mean, because you have to be able to fund it some way, right? I mean, it's uh, uh, and I think where I've seen some organizations run into trouble is that they haven't thought about the business model enough. And so I've been uh, working a lot with. Um, the academic leaders and, and my team and my other finance colleagues in, in terms of thinking about how we do that sensibly um, at UNH. I mean, we, we recently launched an online MBA. We have several of other professional master's courses coming up. Um, one of the coolest things we've done recently is this thing we call a mock, um, a massively open course for kids. Uh, one of our professors, oh, cool. um, Professor Krasner, and our College of Liberal Arts is an expert on Harry Potter, and he's doing a massively open online course for kids this summer on Harry Potter. We're like so excited about it. It's That's uh, so it's awesome. We've got our own Hogwarts you know, uh, division up in New Hampshire. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, check it out. I think it's I think it's going to be uh, going to be very cool. I'm just going to go out on a limb and just you are awesome. Can I just say that? Uh, I'm just going to say it. So. So I've got so much blog material out of this 40 minutes. It's amazing. Yes, it's amazing. Oh, great. On that awesome, great. On that awesome Thanks, note, this has been an awesome conversation. Yeah, I mean, this has been such a fabulous way to, to end my week. I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, thankful that you invited me on. It's been, it's been really great. Our pleasure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, you have been watching CXO Talk, and I'm Michael Krigsman with Vala Offshore. Vala? Sure. Another fantastic show. Thank you, Joanna. You're great. And we've been talking with Joanna Young, who is the CIO at the University of New Hampshire. Thank you so much for listening. And everybody, we will be here next week at the same time and the same place. <laughs>